Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. All right. So I am here today at the American Atheist Convention 2015 in Memphis with uh, Susan Blackmore. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So you're a author, a uh, psychologist. What's your background? Oh, my background is originally I did uh, psychology and physiology at Oxford. And then I, uh, well, (laughs) I had a most extraordinary out-of-the-body experience while I was there. My first term, in fact, in which I seemed to be out of my body, floating around, traveling around the planet. You know, it was the most meaningful experience that I'd ever had. Uh And everything was incredibly vivid. And I'm only telling you this because, in a way, it's been the... The, the, the beginning of the whole story of what, everything that followed because it made me just so um, curious as to what was going on and being of a scientific nature mm-hmm. I wanted to find out but I jumped to the conclusions at the time understandably given the science then that my soul had left my body and I was on the astral planes and life you know uh, there would be life after death Mm -hmm. I jumped to all these conclusions and I became absolutely determined that I was going to become a parapsychologist and I was going to prove to the you know, closed-minded materialist scientists that were teaching me at Oxford that you know there's all these um uh, there's more in heaven and earth than you ever dreamt of in your philosophy and all uh-huh. that stuff. You know, you can imagine me, can't you? Really? Sure. I'm going to prove it to them. Well, what did I do? <laughs> I went and did a PhD in parapsychology, which I was one of the first people to do that in Britain. And um, I did lots of experiments and I didn't find any paranormal phenomena at all. So then I joined PSYCHOP, you know, the... Uh, it's become the Centre for Inquiry now, but the, the mm-hmm. Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and I became a sceptic. I became what I would call rent-a-sceptic. <laughs> you know, I just... Like, the BBC, which is fantastic, they have this policy of being fair to things. So I would go on these TV programmes where there's 99 people who've seen a ghost and Sue Blackmore to tell them about brain processing and the temporal lobes and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or there's uh, 150 people who've been abducted. No, there wouldn't be that many. Let's say 30 people who've been abducted by aliens and Sue Blackmore to come along and say it's really sleep paralysis. Or there would be a 1,000 people in a big TV studio who all know that they're you know, telepathic and Sue Blackmore to come along and say, well, I've done these experiments and they go, you know. So I did that for a long time. And I got really, really sick of it. Um, I think one of the interesting things I discovered was that when I was a believer in all this stuff, the skeptics gave me no trouble. When I became skeptical, I got hate mail, really horrible, horrible things from psychics and, um, you know, people who knew mm-hmm. in the, the truth and they knew they could predict the future and what terrible things would happen to me and all of that kind of thing. But after quite a long time, we're talking many years, um, decades, I 
I thought, I still don't understand that original experience. Mm -hmm. So after a long time, mm -hmm. many, many years, even decades, I thought, well, I still don't understand that original experience. And what is it that's so important about it? It's about well, what's real, what is experience anyway, what is the nature of consciousness? So I went back to those fundamental questions. Mm -hmm. So since then, I've done a lot of work on consciousness, I've written lots of books about consciousness, um, usually trying to increase the perplexity because it's really mysterious and difficult for us to understand scientifically. Uh -huh. Along the way, I became infected with a meme meme, and I wrote a book about memes. <laughs> and I'm very, very interested in cultural evolution and the driving force of the, the evolution of, of memes yeah. and how they've, they've changed us as human beings. So that's a sort of, sorry, I rather a long sketch <laughs> in answer to your question. So I definitely want to get back to, uh, to the memes. But first, I, I would love to talk about your studies in consciousness, because I think it's one of the more difficult problems that we as skeptics or atheists or whatever have to tackle um, because, you know, you can kind of explain to somebody how evolution works or whether or not creation is likely true, but people's own experiences are their own. And when your own experience is unreliable, your memory is unreliable, things like that, I think that's a really interesting thing to study. Do you, is it hard to tell somebody, like, I know this is what you experienced and I know that's what you think, but you're, you're wrong. Your memory is wrong. Yes, but that's not getting at the problem of consciousness. Um, consciousness, we have no definition of consciousness, mm. but um, as close as we get is from a, a philosopher in 1974, Thomas Nagel, who asked the question, what is it like to be a bat? Now, the reason he asked that question is because what he meant was, if there's something it's like to be a bat, anything it's like for the bat, uh -huh. from the bat's point of view, uh -huh. that's what we mean by consciousness. Oh. And if there's nothing it's like to be a bat, then that's what we mean by being not conscious. So these headphones here, you know, is there something it's like to be these headphones? No, I mean, surely not. They, you know, yeah, yeah. they don't have any kind of senses or ability to, they're not modeling the world, they're not interacting with it, they just sit there dead, you know. I mean, not dead, unalive. <laughs> um, but you can ask, is a baby conscious? Is a rat conscious? And, and we can't answer. I mean, it's deeply, deeply mysterious. So I'm kind of diverting from your question, but, but what your question inspired me to think about is the importance of this deep mystery for skeptics. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things that the skeptic can say you're wrong. Uh, we know. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of things about evolution, for example, mm -hmm. a lot of things about probability and chance, a lot of things about the kind of paranormal um, claims that I investigated. We now have the science and we can say you're wrong. But when it comes to consciousness, this is a serious mystery for science at the moment. The more we understand about the brain, you mentioned false memory and mm -hmm. so on, um, we can study that. We understand, you know, <laughs> there'll be loads more to find, but we understand pretty well the perception of color, for example. Mm. Now, we know how the information gets in the brain, where it goes, which bit of V1 is, is well, actually V4, and, um, and, and uh, MT and other areas of the visual system are processing color on what they're doing. But <gasps> what about the greenness of your green shirt? Uh -huh. I mean, that experience. Now, this is a genuine mystery. And I think it's important for skeptics not to go around saying, you know, we know this, we know this, you're wrong, you're wrong, wrong. They should do that in certain circumstances, and they should also be able to say, and here's a genuine mystery we don't understand. Yeah. If it's anything like the mystery of life itself, 
we will one day understand it and we'll go, ah, oh, look, you know, it's not a mystery anymore. It's all down to DNA and evolution and blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. Now we understand, but it used to be a real mystery. Yeah, yeah. Consciousness is like that. That's the mystery of our time. Mm-hmm. At some point, we will see why we've been so deluded about this subjective experience, this what it's like to be me, mm-hmm. that we cannot see how it relates to the brain. We're stuck in dualism. We, as a, as a, in our language, in our cultures, we're stuck... In, in our education, in our growing up, in, in being human, with this sort of feeling that my experiences are private, ineffable qualia, and then there's a physical world out there that's something completely different from. Now, that duality has to be false, but how do we understand non-duality? Mm-hmm. So this is a real mystery, and I, I hope that, you know, the, the really bright, the really inquiring skeptics, the ones who really want to understand the world, I hope they would all say, wow, this is a really interesting mystery. And that's, that's the mystery that I really enjoy tangling with. Man, you, you just blew my whole mind. Um, awesome. uh, what's that? Your mind? What is it? I don't know, but it's blown. Excellent. That's what I want. <laughs> holding up your fists and going, I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Glad to oblige. Um, so memes, let's talk about that. Where did your fascination with memes start? It started because I was very ill. I I think like many people, I just worked too hard, did too much. I'd got a job, I'd got kids, I was traveling, giving lectures. Mm. I just wore myself out and I got chronic fatigue. You know, my legs just didn't work anymore. I, you know, I was in bed for a long time. And um, while I was there, one of my students wrote me an essay called Memes and Consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I kind of faintly remembered these memes idea from having read The Selfish Gene, where Richard Dawkins uh, invented the word and the idea. And um, I was quite inspired by this essay. And also at that time, Dan Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, in Mm -hmm. 1995, had just come out. And I was able, while I was ill, to read, sort of, I could read for about 20 minutes and then I'd have to lie down and gaze at the ceiling for an hour, you know, to recover. Uh And so very, very, very slowly, I read that book. It took me a couple of months at that rate to read. And when I'd finished it, because it's got lots about memes, I reread The Selfish Gene. And lying there, staring at the ceiling, hour after hour, unable to do anything much, mm-hmm. um, I would just the ideas just, you know, the memes used my brain to propagate themselves. And when I was better, I had all these ideas, and I wrote my book, The Meme Machine, mm-hmm. which came out in 1999. And um, ever since then... I suppose I'd expected that by now there would be a thriving science of memetics and everybody would agree that this was the most brilliant way of explaining um, <laughs> cultural evolution, but they don't, you know. Yeah. Um, but I have gone on thinking it requires a kind of mental flip, the same way you have to make a mental flip to understand biological evolution mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you have to see the whole concept of design turned inside out. Mm-hmm. You have to make an equivalent flip to understand our minds, our brains, our culture that it's actually driven from the bottom up by the competition between ideas to use our brains to get spread. Mm -hmm. So that's how it began, and, um, well, I go on thinking it's a great idea, and most people don't. (laughs) Why do you think it's not gained traction the way you expected? Yeah, that's a very, very difficult question. I've given quite a lot of lectures called Why Is There No Science of Memetics? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that any of my reasons are, are right, but one reason is people don't get it. Now, you probably realize that an awful lot of people don't get natural selection. Right. Um, it's actually quite hard 
to really grasp it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, as you can tell from my voice, I come from England, <laughs> and there we have good biological evolution in schools. Mm-hmm. We don't have the scale of the problem that you have. Yeah. <laughs> it's not pretty it lately. <laughs> Pardon? Pretty it lately. The uh, yeah, problem. Yes, I am. I'm very polite. On the whole. It's very British. Uh, of you. <laughs> and um, yet, I would have students in doing psychology degree in their final year doing my consciousness course, and I would say to them, uh, "Would you just?" write down what natural selection means and a lot of them could they can't do it and it is actually very difficult they'll have a they'll have a rough idea but they don't really get it uh-huh. they don't really get, i call it design by death i mean t- to really grasp natural selection you have to grasp the vastness of the number of things that have to die yeah. for design to emerge out of all this variety so you have to understand that if you have, and this is putting it in, in either Dennett or Dawkins' way, mm-hmm. you need a three-step algorithm. You need, um, many other people have said it too, you need variation, you know, things are copied with all sorts of varieties. You need selection, most of them die, and only a few are copied again. And you need hereditary, you need it, whatever it is that helped them survive to be passed on. That's basically what Darwin said. Um, now, um, that sounds so simple, but you really need to grasp the length of time and the amount of stuff that has to be killed off or to die mm-hmm. in order that design emerges. So that's one thing. Um, another thing I think is people are really scared. I mean, I know it sounds pathetic, but people are scared of the idea, which comes straight out of memetics, that memes are bits of information that use us to get themselves copied. Mm-hmm. That everything I have said, that my books, my articles, my everything, you know, this interview, is memes, words, stories, skills, habits, copyable information, uh-huh. just, you know, English got into this brain, yeah. <laughs> you happen to turn up there, you know. It, it does away with any kind of magical idea of free will, mm. as does so much of science anyway, but, you know, so all that is, is frightening to people. And I think, finally, the third reason is evolution itself has, as you well know, its enemies from different directions. So there are many um, uh, biologists and, and scientists mm-hmm. who want to keep Darwin evolutionary theory natural selection to themselves, to biology. Mm-hmm. They, they, they really think that it's a, a bastardization, a, a, a false idea to, to take Darwin's ideas and apply it in yeah. the realm of internet memes or something like that. They really don't want us to do that. Yeah. And on the other side are social scientists of various kinds, not all of course, who don't want anything to do with evolution. I mean, they want, they want their, their, their history, their, their geography, their, their humanities mm-hmm. to be free of that. A lot don't, but some do. Uh-huh. And so you're kind of, memetics is kind of squeezed between these. So those are just some of the reasons. But I, as I said, I don't know whether those are the real reasons or not, but it is, it's hard going. Sure. Interesting. Do you think the reason people struggle to understand evolution or natural selection, do you think it's because we're not good at understanding big numbers? Like you can't, we can't yes. grasp a million years or... 100 million years is yes. that 
I think that's a large part of it, just the, the vastness of time. Dan Dennett does a wonderful job of trying to explain that. Yeah. And probability. I mean, I've done a lot of studies because it relates to the paranormal and coincidences uh -huh. and so on, on how bad we are generally at understanding probability. Yes. So when it comes to one in two and tossing a coin, it's difficult enough. Yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to millions, billions of years, uh -huh. you know, we just, we find that, that really hard. Yeah, or even uh, the thing that, Carl Sagan does. I'm sure somebody did it before him with, you know, if all of time is a 12-year calendar, then this happened in April and this happened in March, and then we're, what, 11.59 on New Year's Eve? And I, I, can't, I know it's right and I know it's true, but I can't make my brain understand it. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I think that's important. But I think another thing that's important is that when we look at all the things around us, like in front of me is a pen and some paper and some headphones and, you know, carpet and table and these other things, we think they've been intelligently designed. Mm -hmm. We think that somehow in our head is this sort of conscious, I mean, not everybody, but there's a sort of conscious me and uh -huh. I have these brilliant ideas and I designed, you know, if I, if I do a, I, I, I paint a lot, I love painting. If I, you know, paint a picture uh -huh. and I'm pleased with it, I think, mm, I painted that picture, you uh -huh. know. And, and so it's very hard for us to make the flip in, when thinking about biological design uh -huh. into thinking that it was driven from the bottom up by little bits of information stored on a molecule of DNA competing uh -huh. with each other, that they produce this stuff. And so it's very easy to keep on applying our ideas of intelligent design, i.e., you know, what we think happens in the brain, uh -huh. uh, to that. Now, the flip we have to make is so big, I think, it is, and applies in both biology and in culture or memes, that human design actually is only intelligent because of the memes. And this is a really hard thing for people to huh. think. I would say that um, an elephant or a tree is designed. It's designed by natural selection. Uh. Now, Richard Dawkins doesn't say that. He puts design in inverted commas there. I don't have the inverted commas. That's all the design there is in the universe as far uh, as I'm concerned. Yeah. When I do a painting, that is not my conscious design. It's not me intelligently designing it. It is the competition between all the memes. You know, I've learned to use a paintbrush. I've learned whether Red Lake or Elizabeth in Crimson is better for the, what I want to paint on there. I've learned how to mix the, 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 the oil paint with the whatever it is. These are all memes acquired by this brain, and this are is controlled by all that stuff. This freaks people out. I don't yeah. know why, you know. I, I'm happy to What's be here as an organism that got here for no reason at all, doesn't have free will, and is just processing memes and throwing them out. It's wonderful and amazing and, you know, but people find that really hard. I, think, I don't think people like to think that they're not under control of their own yeah. destiny yeah. or Yes, yes. You. Then comes the big question. Who's in control of their own destiny? And it right. comes right back to a question which I think is fundamentally important, which is, who am I? Mm -hmm. Now, I've um, been training in Zen for 30 years, more than 30 years. I've, I've meditated every day for that long. Um, and uh, I'm not a Buddhist. I haven't signed up to believing stuff because it's in a book or any of that. Uh -huh. but, but the practice is fantastic. And a lot of that practice, apart from just calming the mind, uh -huh. which in my case takes some doing because yes. there's so much going on. Um, it's a lot about asking, who am I? Yeah. And learning to discard or drop, or perhaps not discard, that implies pushing away more. Learning to drop 
the clinging to the self, uh-huh. building up the self is very important, yeah. giving it powers and control. It's a lot about letting go of control. Mm-hmm acting, doing things that have consequences, mm-hmm. uh, admitting and accepting those consequences or even taking responsibility for them while knowing that this is just simply stuff playing out. I mean, this is one of the amazing things that the Buddha saw. It's called codependent arising. Um, everything that happens happens because of what happened before. Uh-huh. I mean, that was a pretty stunning thing to say two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> he wasn't saying, there's a God who made it. He uh-huh. was saying, everything that happens happens because of what went before. It's, it's almost like laws of thermodynamics uh-huh. in a very simple form, you know. Um, and, and that's th- all relates to the self. The self is just a name we give to something that isn't really what we think it is. It's mm-hmm. an illusion in that sense. There's not a little me inside pulling the strings, being... <laughs> being the subject of experience, being uh-huh. the initiator of the actions, there is an idea of a self, a uh-huh. story about a self, and there's a body acting in the world because of everything that went before. That, um, that's the light in which I want to think about control when you said, you know, I'm in charge of, yeah, yeah. you know, well, who? If the self is a, a, an ever-changing, ephemeral kind of a story produced by the ongoing processes in a brain, uh-huh. it's not it's not in charge of everything and wanting to control things is a a big problem in our life uh-huh. and my mum was a control freak yeah. and so I'm probably a little bit obsessed with that idea but you know we don't have in my opinion an inner conscious self with the power to control its body the body is an integrated system a part yeah. of an interconnected world doing what it does because of all those interconnections interesting I think uh, the meditation thing is really. You, so you said you meditate every day. Mm-hmm. How how does I can I've tried to do it. I do yoga and they're always oh, like, yeah. "Where am I? Can't I can't I can't do it." Like, is it something that you practice until yes. you? Yes, the word practice is absolutely it. It's all practicing. It is practicing sitting still and just being there. That sounds awful. It is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 but it gets better. Yeah, I mean. You know, I think we have a problem in um, in the sort of society's view of meditation that, oh, it's so relaxing. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, some kinds of meditation are. Guided meditations, imagining the ocean and stuff like uh-huh. that. But serious meditation for a different purpose, for real transformation, is very hard. It's mm-hmm. very tough. Because in the beginning, well, always really, but in the beginning it's harder because you have to sit there learn skills, there are lots of different ways of doing it, to calm the mind and watch. And what you see is ghastly stuff. I mean, when I first went on my first retreat ever at a remote farmhouse in the mountains of Wales, um, I found it horrific, really. It was a difficult time in my life anyway, but I would sit there hour after hour, because the way the retreats work, you sit half an hour's meditation, you do 10 minutes slow walking or exercise or something, another half hour sitting, another 10 minutes walking around the room, another half hour sitting, then you might go off and do some job or something. You come back and do another half hour, and you get up at 4.30 in the morning, and it goes on till 10 at night, and I can tell you, you have to face up to yourself. Yeah. I remember, my, my husband always goes on about this because he went on a retreat, and, and, and uh, my teacher then, John Crook, used to say, well, there's only you and the wall, and the wall isn't doing it. 
<laughs> and, you know, I would be sitting at, looking at this wall and there would be scenes of torture and murder. There would be guilt for terrible things I've done. There would be hatred of my mother for trying to make me do this, that, and the other. Uh-huh. There would be anger with my husband for being unkind. Or, you know, I mean, endless drivel, 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 ghastliness. Uh-huh. Ang- you know, it, it, but facing up to that stuff, learning to be there with it, uh-huh. it loses its power. That's great. Because that's, that's what I get if I try to, like, you know, meditate or do whatever. Like, uh, the first thing, it's immediately, like, stuff I did that's embarrassing. Something I said on this show yeah, that was stupid. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I hate it. I hate yeah, it of course so you do. Much. Of course you do. Okay, okay. <laughs> right. You're in the first step then. So <laughs> but it's I the can, worst step. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. Why did I persevere? And that's probably the question that you're asking. Why, well, why keep doing it? You know, if it's so horrible. Read my mind. Why did I persevere? I don't know probably because life was so painful. And then, now I persevere. I, I mean, often I don't know why I persevere, I just do. Uh-huh. I, I, I made a commitment with myself that I would sit every day, and I do. But I would say the effect is coming to terms with yourself. And selves are hard stuff, you know, the stuff that these brains throw up, the, the, the guilt, the embarrassment, the shame, the anger, the fury, the hatred, the, all this human stuff. Uh-huh. Now, I think it's a lot better to live one's life able to see that and sit with it yeah. than it is every time it comes up, ah, go away. The, the skill, part of the skill of meditation is this awfully tricky balancing act. Some people liken it to surfing a wave or something. You know, you can fall back, you can fall forward. You know, it's it's, it's a balancing Uh act. The way to deal with these things is neither to um, hang on to them Mm -hmm. nor to push them away. Mm -hmm. So our teaching um, is a very common um, statement. Um, When you sit in meditation, let it come in. You know, let the stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't block it. Don't go. <laughs> like you acknowledge it, it and yeah, dismiss yeah. it. Is... And let it be. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is, it's what it is. Mm-hmm. And let it go. Not push it away. Uh-huh. Not, not, no, 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 no. Yeah. Just let it go. When you are able eventually after years and years and years of meditation to let anything come, be, and go, uh-huh. then that's a peaceful mind. It's not an empty mind necessarily. I mean, it, to, to some extent, one can meditate with a lot of practice and have no thoughts. Mm-hmm. But that isn't really the point. That's a huh. skill. Um, but more the point is to be able, whatever thought comes, whatever impression comes, whatever mm-hmm. terrible things happen, is to allow them to be what they are and let them go when they go. Now, does that sound to you to be something worthwhile or does it just sound a bit bonkers? No, it sounds like I need to do that because I have the worst problem that I'll just be sitting and doing nothing and like, you know, the, the, there's a thing on, uh, I saw on Facebook and it's a guy, it's a, a meme, an internet meme of uh, a guy like lying in bed with his eyes wide awake and like that thing I said seven years was so stupid and I get that all the time and I, it's torturous, not tor- I don't want to yeah, no, I, I, be I think, dramatic about it yeah. but it's awful and I hate yes. it. And I think being able to deal with things like that are, is, would be incredibly helpful. Well, then, I think what would, might be helpful to you is to know that it is hard. Mm-hmm. And if you want to meditate and you sit down and it's hard, mm-hmm. accept, okay, it's hard. Yeah. That, one of the, 
I've had so many things happen that have been kind of turning points. And I met Barbara Ramdas. I don't know if you know who he is. In the 1970s, he wrote a book, Be Here Now. Great, you know, he was a, a psychologist who went off to India and blah. Uh, but I met him once and I told him I'd been practicing mindfulness, which wasn't all trendy then. Uh-huh. I mean, serious mindfulness, like yeah. moment to moment being here. Yes. And it's so hard. And I said to him, but it's so hard. And he looked at me with a beautiful look and he said, it's even harder than you think. <laughs> and you know, that was such a f- freeing... Yeah. To, to know that it, was, it wasn't just me being bad at it yeah. or something, you know, that it really, really helped we're me a lot. We're all struggling with it. Mm? That we're all kind of struggling with the same thing. Yes, things. yes, and that if I went on, it might get even harder. It was yeah. sort of scary, but, but drew me on. Uh, when, I, when I talk about this, I might sound as though I really know more than I do. Um, <laughs> I can tell you some of these stuff that I've been through and uh-huh. come through, but I can tell you there's a whole lot more. Um, I have been on retreats with a, an American Zen teacher called Reb Anderson, and he, one of the many things he teaches is welcome all beings. What he means by that is welcome all, every perception, every thought, every idea, everything that happens, you welcome it. Uh-huh. Oh, the first time he said that, I was like, what? But what about all the horrible things? I get out, yeah. But gradually, Gradually, I sort of, that's what I try to do. And like last night, I went to bed. There was an awful noise going on, this music outside. And I was like, oh, shut up. <laughs> how could I welcome that? How could I? But, you know, I, I, think, I think with practice. Yeah. And actually, if you can welcome anything, then you're not afraid. Uh, I, that's hard. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to admit to the, that it goes on being hard, uh-huh. and yet it seems to me to be worthwhile to, be worth to do it. this. And it didn't, I mean, to come back to your question of some time ago about who's in control and so on, all this reflects on the nature of self, on who am I, what's going on here, what's uh-huh. it all about. Basically, the deepest, most fundamental questions about yeah. how we live. Yeah, I've been personally trying to be better about acknowledging the moment, like acknowledging when I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. You know, we have to work and we have to clean Mm. and we have to cook Mm. and we have to do Mm. all this crap that is necessary but not fun. And I try to be like, okay, I'm here at this conference. I am doing a podcast that I'm passionate about, like to grab onto those moments and be like, things are good right now. Acknowledge that. I'm terrible at it, but it's... No, well, that's it. They're not easy, these things. Yeah. That's why the word you used was so important. Which one? Practice. Yes. <laughs> um, I had another question uh, that I completely forgot. So um, we're coming up on a half hour. Uh, where can people find your books, your work? Um, well, I have a website. If you put Susan Blackmore into Google, you'll find it straight away. But uh-huh. it's, uh, I think it's susanblackmore.uk. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, I am not on Twitter. I am not on Facebook. I, will I know. Never I was get... just trying to find you on yeah. Twitter so I could tell you where we were going to be late and I couldn't find you. No, well, this is something I do battle with a little bit, but I I had January, I gave up email completely. Really? And it was a revelation. I I realized I haven't written a serious book for many years, Uh and I I gave up email because I just had become so overwhelmed with every morning waking up with this awful kind of pressure of all the stuff I've got to do, Uh and going to bed at night not having finished it with the inbox full of stuff and feeling... what is life if it's like... So I just decided to have a month off. I mean, I do have an assistant only, only part-time, and you know, she, but, but she fielded things in case there was anything really urgent. Um, and otherwise, I just let it <clears throat> all go. And I began to write another book. 
and I remembered why I enjoyed my work. I remembered what I want to do. I want to read scientific papers, understand stuff, put them together, see if I can... Under I'm actually writing about out-of-the-body experiences. I'm going right back to what started me to off the in the roots. first place. And I'm sitting there at my desk going, oh, yes, oh, oh, this is what I want to be doing. So I think if I, if I joined Facebook or Twitter or any of these other things, they yeah. would just be another burden. And so for the moment, I don't. I love and I don't have a card to give people. And if people ask me, I go, mm, sorry. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's so interesting. And I feel like I'm having that moment right now because, you know, doing what I'm doing at this convention, I'm trying to pack in eight interviews in one day and think of questions and research people who I don't necessarily know a whole lot about and don't want to look like an idiot in front of. But, like, I'm, ha I'm so happy right now. I love Good. hearing what you have to say. And I remember why I'm enjoying doing this. And I'm lucky. Good. I'm, feel very good. You know, take on the world after this. <laughs> Excellent. Well, okay. it's fun for me too. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time and um, I very much do appreciate it. I shall get back to these wicked atheists. Now. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.